Hey, welcome to Small Findings. This is a podcast where, step one, I find things out, and step two, I tell them to you. So the findings we have today are, what happens to guerrilla art once it gets established? And by guerrilla, I mean the kind of guerrilla spelled G-U-E-R-I-L-L-A, not not the primate kind. So we'll look at one case where some originally guerrilla art became established and some weird things that happened to it. And then we'll, there's a finding about uh, the phrase hell-bent for leather. What does it mean? And we'll go as far as we can with the question, where did it come from? And finally... We will, uh, we have a finding that is about the connection between a sound that is repeated several times, like tick, 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 tick. There I repeated the sound tick four times. Um, the connection between that and the timbre of a single instance, quote instance, end quote, a single instance of a sound. Like if I say, eh, that's that's uh, what you might consider a single instance of a sound, and it has a certain quality of sound, which we call a timbre. All right, on to the findings. Via Futility Closet, a blog, which also has a podcast, by the way, I learned about the origins of Charging Bull, that's the name of the big bronze sculpture of the charging bull that's in front of the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, I'm going to read from the blog post here. Uh, it says that artist Arturo de Modica spent $360,000 to create the three-ton statue, trucked it to lower Manhattan, and on December 15th, 1989... He left it in front of the New York Stock Exchange as a Christmas gift to the people of New York. Police impounded it, but after a public outcry, the city decided to install it two blocks south of the exchange. And reading. So I looked at Arturo de Modica's uh, Wikipedia entry, and it turns out that um, it's... As you may have guessed, he's from Italy, and uh, he it says he actually built his own foundry uh, in which he made his, his sculptures, and then he eventually moved to New York. Uh, in New York, in the 70s, he became frustrated uh, with not getting attention from art critics, so uh, after, after the, the lead art critic at the New York Times hung up on him uh, when he was invited to visit uh, Demotica's exhibit, Demotica decided to illegally drop off, uh, here it says in Wikipedia, illegally drop off eight monumental abstract sculptures at Rockefeller Center, blocking Fifth Avenue and drawing the attention 
of the police. So it seems like, yeah, this is how he got his big start. And uh, this kind of this kind of uh, guerrilla art is is a big part of his career. So what happened after that was the mayor came by and uh, Demotica was only fined $25 and he received permission to temporarily leave the sculptures on exhibit. And then he got a lot of attention for that. I feel like this is a forceful form of, if we're thinking of, of this from a business and attention perspective, of the free product that is meant to be a funnel into the paid product. So um, I looked for, unfortunately, I, I couldn't deliver for you listeners, but I, I looked for the prices at which his work sold between 1977 when he uh, blocked Fifth Avenue with his statues, and the uh, in 1989 when he self-financed the building of Charging Bull, uh, and I couldn't find it. But we do know, right, that he paid three hundred fifty thousand dollars to build the statue. So he had three hundred fifty thousand dollars to put into. Uh, what is basically a free statue. So between 1977 and 1989, he made at least $350,000, probably a lot more. So putting putting his art out there for free and uh, going beyond that and making it kind of non-optionally free, sort of pushing it to people, uh, got his name out there, and then he was able to uh, enjoy both critical um, and perhaps aesthetic, uh, but also financial success. There's a twist that happens in uh, this story of guerrilla art placement that happens um, much later, uh, over 20 years later in 2017. And you know, you may have heard of this. Um, a statue was installed right in front of the uh, Charging Bull statue. And it was a statue of a little girl called Fearless Girl standing right in front of the bull. And it was, uh, it was anticipation of International Women's Day. And the idea was that it would uh, sell, uh, promote female empowerment, but it was funded by uh, State Street Global Advisors, which is a big uh, financial investment bank sort of company. I think, I guess, technically it is a large asset management company, according to Wikipedia. So guerrilla art can, can work in many ways. This is a kind of a funny twist in that a large global corporation did this and they did get permission from the city to place it there for uh, 30 days. But it is still sort of subversive as in they they took existing art and then they put more art in front of it, thereby changing the original art. Uh, 
And in a sense, and they, they did it without permission from the established artist. Um, and of course, or maybe not of course, I was actually a little surprised, Arturo de Modica really did not like this. And uh, he called it an advertising trick and he said it changed the perception of the bull. Um, he thought of the bull as being heroic. Um, and yeah, I, I should talk about why he originally made this as a gift for New York is um, because because he became so successful, he uh, felt he owed New York. And to celebrate that, he made a charging bull. And I think, I don't, I don't know for sure uh, how he feels about capitalism, but it has come to be seen as a very pro-capitalist symbol. Um, but putting, putting the small girl in front of it is, uh, you know, makes it seem like a scary monster. And I, th I think uh, Fearless Girl wasn't the first uh, to, to interpret it that way. I think you know, it looks like Occupy Wall Street used it as a symbol of something terrible. So he and his Demotica and his attorney threatened to sue the city and they moved uh, Fearless Girl elsewhere. What I find interesting about this is I'm, I'm sure that uh, Demotica's lawyer uh, had a way to explain this, but Charging Bull itself was originally a piece of guerrilla art that was placed without permission. So it seems weird to uh, use lawyers to make another piece of art move away from it. Even though I, I and, and that that art actually got permission to be there, so it's very strange. Uh, you know, I don't I don't know what to to make of it. Like if you if you put a piece of gorilla art somewhere, do you really have the art? The do you really have the right? Well, I'm not going to say the legal right because I don't know much about that. But you have the moral right to say. Uh, if somebody else places some art uh, where I don't like it, uh, I should be able to to threaten to sue to get it moved away. But anyway, um, yeah, the, this you know raging or not raging charging bull, um, you know even though he put three hundred fifty thousand dollars of his own money, uh, looking around at replicas he sold. Um, and smaller replicas also, uh, I'm pretty sure he's made that $350,000 back. As for the Fearless Girl sculpture, uh, once you demonstrate a trick, other people can do that same trick to you. So it says here in Wikipedia that uh, somebody added a statue called Peeing Pug and put it next to Fearless Girl, but removed it after only three hours. And of course, yeah, some people put a bunch of uh, Trump stuff all over it. And uh, one more note about the corporate origins of Fearless Girl. Uh, State Street later had to pay, I think that year, they had to pay $5 million to settle a loss lawsuit from 
female and minority employees who alleged that the company violated equal pay rights. So there you have it. There, there are a lot of twists and unexpected motives and actors in the story of the charging bull. I was listening to some Judas Priest the other day, and while listening to the song Hellbent for Leather, I actually thought a little bit about the lyrics there. So the chorus go, just goes hellbent, hellbent for leather. Uh, you know, the typical Judas Priest style, breaking the law, breaking the law, that kind of thing. But the verse is all about some guy who rides a motorcycle really fast and then uh, people that try to catch up with him, but they die because they're not as fast or good at riding a motorcycle. So I'm not really a careful lyrics listener. I, I often don't know the words to my favorite songs and albums. Uh, and it's not, not just because I listen to a lot of death metal, like even, even the clean singing songs I listen to, I, I often don't know what's being said. So this is, even though I've, I've listened to this song many times over the years, and I really thought about what's going on here. There's, in the verse, there's a guy who is riding a motorcycle real fast. And then in the chorus, he's hellbent for leather. So is that... I thought about this. Does this mean that somebody is trying to ride real fast so that he could get some leather because he's really motivated by having leather? That seems sort of unlikely. Um, so I, I looked this up and I found something on a site called The Word Detective. The word detective says that hell for leather referred to riding a horse very fast. And the leather referred to either being the saddle or the leather crop used to hit the horse to make the horse go faster. <clears throat> the word detective also says that Rudyard Kipling seemed to use the, the phrase a lot and may have popularized it. So there's no explanation for exactly, there's no really tight connection uh, that explains this came from here and that came for there, from there and, and therefore this is why we have this phrase. But um, we could, I guess, at least trace it back to uh, Rudyard Kipling and maybe maybe earlier and it seems that uh, the term hell-bent for leather made its way into the Rawhide theme, the, the show from the 60s about cowboys. Uh, there's, there's a part where they say hell-bent for leather. Keep them doggies rolling rawhide Through rain and wind and weather Hell-bent for leather Wishing so 
maybe that's where Rob Halford heard about it. And then he updated and modernized it to work with motorcycles. So hellbent for leather is a phrase that originally referred to riding a horse really fast. And Rob Helford may have heard this phrase from any number of vectors, including the Western movie with that name, um, the Rawhide theme song, or, or any other fictional work in any media about cowboys or Westerns. And it may have been that he put it through its leap to apply to motorcycles because I, I couldn't find a reference to hellbent for leather, meaning riding a motorcycle fast that doesn't also include Judas Priest. Get ready for a sound, and also some computer sounds, because I am going to be recording this segment live, and I'm not going to edit it because I don't want to do any syncing between what's going on on my computer. <coughs> See, I'm going to leave in my cough. My computer and my uh, phone, which is recording my voice, and my computer is recording my computer. So, uh, get ready for this sound. Here we go. So what is that? Well, um, that sound, that sound is a bassoon, but it's being played very quickly. So let's hear it again and let's slow it down. In fact, it's being played at a rate of 376 times per second. Here it is again, let's slow it down. Slowing it way down, slowing it down. I keep on slowing it down. It doesn't sound, doesn't sound like a bassoon yet. Let's keep going. Oh wait, here we go. All right, that sounds a little bit like a bassoon, but it's annoying. All right, that's five times per second, four times per second, two times per second, and one. There you go. One time per second. So that sounded like a bassoon, right? So the reason I'm playing these sounds to you is because I read a month or so back in this book called The Theory and Technique of Electronic Music that 30 is roughly the maximum number of separate events that the ear can discern per second. So I'm quoting here. It says, for instance, 30 vocal phonemes or melodic notes or attacks of a snare, drum, a snare drum are about the most we can hope to crowd into a second before ability, our ability to distinguish them breaks down. Like one snare hit per second would be 60 beats per minute. 30 times 60 is 1800. So that's 1800 beats per minute. So right now, um, bands like uh, Archspire have hit like 260 beats per minute and like there's there's a tangent to be uh explored maybe at another point 
it, it already sounds fake. Um, even though, you know, if there's video, they, they play live and, uh, they, they really do, uh, drum that fast, but, um, that's a long way from 1800. So I thought it'd be interesting to see what we can and can't perceive around the neighborhood of, uh, 30 Hertz of 30 repetitions of a sound per second. So let's go back. Let's go back to our bassoon sample. I've loaded into a pure data patch, and this pure data patch right now will um, play it through uh, a wavetable, or it has it in a wavetable, it'll play that wavetable once per second. So, there we go. Clearly, clearly that is, you could tell where all the bassoon notes are. All right, now we're at 10 per second. It's annoying, but you could hear it. You could you could hear the individual beeps there. All right, we're getting closer to here's 23. Uh, that's not good times, but you can still tell what's going on. 26. Uh, I'm gonna mute this for a second, which uh, maybe I should have done earlier for the other things. But yeah, at 26, it doesn't sound pitched anymore. It, it sounds percussive. All right. Let's get closer to 30. 26. Whoa, sorry, 27. Sorry about the spoiler there. 28. Let's go back to 27. 28. It's interesting that 28 sounds lower. Um, in a previous recording of this segment, I, I tried to, uh, I tried to wing an explanation of that, and I don't have it. I hope to someday, someday do that, but let's just appreciate it as a, a cool, weird thing right now. All right, so let's go on to 29 here. 29, oh, sorry. 29. Can you hear individual notes? Oh, I can't sing it. But I could hear individual attacks. All right, so I'm gonna move it to 30. Ready? There you go. And you could see if you could hear individual repetitions of this sound. I think I can, but that's because I'm, I'm ready for it. Okay, now let's go beyond and see if we could pick things out. All right, 34. 37. All right, now, now I do hear attacks, and you might too, the, the starts of repetitions, but I don't hear, I clearly don't hear all of them. I hear them kind of abstracted into something slower. So instead of hearing all 37 per second, uh, I hear maybe every, every fifth or so. So maybe six per second or something like that. All right, let's keep going beyond. Right now we're at 52. So now, now it just sounds, it's starting to, you could kind of tell out, tell, you could kind of tell um, that this is made of individual repetitions, but you'd be hard pressed to be able to tell exactly where they are. And it's starting to sound like another sound entirely. All right, let's keep moving. 
Now we're at 110. That's that's 220. That is an A, right? Uh, an A, an A note. One of the A's, uh, you know, uh, has a frequency of 220 repetitions per second, 220 cycles per second. A. It's kind of like a real buzzy A. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go up to 440. The classic thing that we we tune to in the modern world when we want want everyone to be in tune and uh, playing A's. Okay. Hold on, I'm having trouble. Okay, here I go. Ready? So there, I think, by the time we get to this point, no one is saying uh, someone's just repeating a sound a bunch of times. That just sounds like a continuous sound, albeit a very buzzy one. Let's jump to 880. I'm going to spare uh, spare you the thing where I slide up to it. Um, although that's kind of fun, so maybe I'll do that next time. 878, the, the only problem is it's in this uh, pure data number control. It's very hard to just step up really precisely. Okay, here's 880. Ready? A. All right. Okay, let's explore a little more and see if anything else sounds cool. Oh, 938. That's kind of awesome. 1139. 50, oh, 1512 is rough. 1785. 2140. Oh, wow. 2831. I think that's a good one. Alright, we'll do one more. Wait, I'm gonna, gonna mute it. I'm gonna try to go go way up there into like the 8000s or, or something. Oh, wait, this might take too long. I'm gonna settle for like 6000 into the into the to the brightness range where you know if you boost these frequencies when you are uh, mixing something it'll it'll usually make something sound real bright okay here we go 6155 go that was a little underwhelming but yeah I I hope you you got a good picture of the the, the sort of spectrum between uh, a sound repeated many times and something that just sounds like a single sound that's not being repeated that's continuous. Um, I hope you got to hear that morphing between uh, a repeated sound and a timbre, a quality of sound. Like, uh, for, like a timbre is something like a violin has one timbre and a piano has another timbre. They have they have a different quality of sound. You might even call it a type of sound if uh, you're ignoring the other ways that sound's going to have types. Um, yeah, thanks for bearing with me. And that is all the findings we have for today. Thank you for listening to them. And if you happen to have a finding that you want to share, or you have a comment you want to make about any of the findings, 
or you have a question about one of these findings or another finding or a finding that doesn't even exist yet, you could email me at smallfindings at fastmail.com and I will probably answer. I mean, almost certainly. I think I've answered to 100% of the emails that have gone to smallfindings at fastmail.com. So that, that's another finding right there, a bonus finding. Anyway, thank you again for listening and uh, talk to you next time. <laughs>